This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and Grumpy Old Man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Suzanne. Hey, Ruben. How's hey, it going? It's good. I feel like it's weekend. It's 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 sort of weekend, right? It's it's weekend adjacent. Yeah. I, <laughs> nearly weekend. Does that I, that counts? I absorb both sides. You just kind of <laughs> pull them into the weekend a little bit. I, it's like I've got a four day weekend on both. Yeah. And I a took, two day work week. Uh, you had, oh yeah. I, I took a vacation this week for the first I know. time. I went off grid. Good. How was it? It was good. I went to Sea Ranch and I took okay. pictures and it was relaxed and turned off the internet and Oh good. I can't remember the last time I did it. I think I'm gonna I'm not sure I'm really gonna go out on a limb here, but I think I'm gonna turn off my Facebook. I think it will help. And I'm mad at Facebook anyway, so it all goes together with uh, what, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? I think I'm was, not calling you a camel. I just realized halfway through that metaphor, I probably should, no, I, should have picked another one. I just decided, you know, I think maybe it was Zuckerberg supporting the the RNC convention. And I just didn't feel mm-hmm. like uh, I, it just bugged me. So I just thought, you know what? And I've been meaning to do this forever. It, it's got too much control for what it is. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, I'm turning off social media. Well, we have uh, a guest today, and I'm very excited to introduce you to a, an old friend of mine. I, Maggie, we're not super close, but I feel like I've known you for most of my adult life. Uh, Suzanne, this is Maggie Taylor. Maggie, Suzanne. Maggie, it's an honor. I am so excited to meet you. Hi. Yeah, I'm interested to talk with you guys. So, so you're in Gazel. So let me um, back up just a little bit. Uh, I've talked a lot about Jerry Ulsman on the show. He was a big influence on me, and that's how I met you. I had graduated college, I guess, when I met you, and then slowly I started seeing your work showing up in our collection, and <laughs> it's so it was fascinating to me because it was really different than a lot of a lot of the other pieces that uh, my father was drawn to. Um, but your earliest work uh, was. Uh, the the work that I was most familiar with were like uh, collages, right? Is that how did you get into photography, and how did how did um, how has it shifted in those early early years? Like what what got you into it? Well, I started when I was in college because um, I was looking just for a different sort of a class to take, and I had taken a couple of art classes, and I'm really not good at drawing and painting. I took a sculpture class and. You know, I tried, but I just didn't really, it didn't connect for me. And someone said, why don't you take a photography class? It's so easy. There's no reading. You don't have to read any books or anything. And you just get to go down in this cool basement of the architecture building and just, uh, you know, learn to work with black and white negatives. So I signed up for it and I just immediately liked it. It's like I I went, I remember I went home and I must have been like, Christmas break and I decided I'd take this in the spring term and my dad let me borrow a Nikon camera that he had and up until then I had only had 
some like small pocket Instamatic camera to take pictures of my roommates or some life on campus or something. And so suddenly I started walking around New Haven. This was at Yale. And I was like walking around downtown New Haven, photographing mostly people's yards and um, just scenes around different neighborhoods in New Haven. So you didn't, you weren't a kid with a camera. You weren't like that kid who had a, you know, took pictures of all your friends and. Not much. I mean, I did have some small, I think it was like a Kodak Instamatic type of a thing because I have a few pictures that I took of my pets when I was little. I had hamsters and verbals. So I had some where I posed them on a like on a scarf to sort of see how cute they looked on, like set up two books and drape a scarf over them and then have Leonard and Seymour, the hamsters sit there and I photographed them. I did that. But then by the time I went to high school, I really didn't take that many pictures. You know, I have like maybe 20 pictures still existing that are ones that I took in high school just of friends and going to a beach or something like that. So you started taking photography classes at in college at Yale. Um, you, what got you to Gainesville? Was it photography? Well, so then I wasn't a I wasn't an art major in college. I was a philosophy major, and I just was doing this art thing for fun. But it turned out I had a couple of really great teachers. I was very lucky. My my beginning teacher was Jan Groover. And then I had Ben Lifson and Todd Papa George as my teachers. And Ben Lifson um, asked me if I wanted to, well, I, I took a, an art history, a photo history course too, which was one of the first ones they offered there. And I took um, another photo history thing with, uh, or sort of centered on photography, but it was art history with Rosalind Krauss. So I had really interesting teachers, but then Ben Lifson asked me if I wanted to have a job working at a gallery in New York for the summer. And I thought, well, that's something I never even considered. Would my parents even let me go live in New York for the summer? But it turned out one of my roommates was going to work on Wall Street for the summer. So I said, OK, I'll I'll try it. And I went for this interview at Daniel Wolf Gallery up on 57th Street. And I thought it would be sort of like they'd have to ask me a lot of questions and they'd be really strict about things and that they would not pay me anything. I thought that mm -hmm. was sort of an intern. That's what that would be. But when I got there, he said, so how much would I need to pay you for you to be able to afford to be in New York for the summer? And he was so generous. He was a very nice person. I still run into him once in a while at APAD. And um, I cattle, this is more information than you need. I, I love it. It's a great story. <laughs> my job when I got there was, well, I got to help with openings. Um, and I think they had a Joel Sternfeld opening when I was there. And then um, I cataloged this collection of mammoth plate prints that he had that was going to be published in a in a book. So it was basically sitting alone in a room, measuring and writing up descriptions. Um, we didn't photograph any of them, weirdly, back then. They were just verbal descriptions of it was what's like in 80, That was 80, early 80s, right? You couldn't... You, One. Photographing them with a camera is almost as much work as... I don't know. It's a lot of work. What know? is a mammoth plate print? Just a very large plate print? Do you have to be and a certain were, size before you're a mammoth? Glass. The, the negatives are very large glass. That's why it's oh. mammoth negative, kind of. So the camera would have been like Carlton Watkins is what most of them were in Yosemite with mm -hmm. that very large um, glass negative. And I mean, I want to say they're roughly 16 by 20, but could wow. be a little less than that. So they're really beautiful, detailed contact prints, albumin prints. Um, 
it was fun. So I, I, then I got kind of into the history of photography and I thought I would like to go to Princeton. So I applied to get a PhD in photo history at Princeton, but I got rejected because I was not an art history major. Um, I found this out years later after I became friends with Peter Bunnell and he looked into it and he's like, yeah, why didn't we accept you? And it was because I just didn't have enough credits in art history at that time. Wow. That's too bad. Yeah. But so then I thought, well, uh, I'll move to Boston and I moved to Boston briefly. And then I moved to West Palm beach and worked in a museum for a year as a secretary, like secretary to the director. I'm a really good typist because I learned to type when I was like in fifth grade. So like, that's what we did in my all girls school is type every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's practical, and you know, it is speed reading and typing. That's what I took. And, and those things have served me well. <laughs> I think when, but, when computers happened, I was really grateful that I had was very comfortable typing like that. It, you didn't think you would ever be a typist and then computers happened. And then you think, Oh, I, We've got to be really good at that. Still Gainesville, huh? Well, so I lived in Florida. And at that time, my parents lived in Palm Beach. And I was working at the museum there. And I thought, you know, I would really like to do something with photography. And I didn't have a dark room I could work in in Palm Beach. So I thought maybe the thing is to apply to some sort of an MFA program. So I applied to NYU. And I got in. And then my parents got kind of nervous about how much is this going to cost? And it was back then the MFA programs were two years. And so my mother said, oh, a friend of mine says there's a good school in Gainesville. And I was like, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, I, and so I drove, I, it was June and school was going to start in August and you were supposed to have already applied in March or something. So I called the office and I got a very nice secretary on the phone. Ella was her name. And she said, I don't think they've accepted all three slots that they could have for the MFA. Somebody's not coming, I think. So you should send your portfolio directly to me. And so I did. And two days later, I got a phone call and they said, you know, come up here and meet us and have lunch and have a tour of the, of Gainesville. What was your portfolio like? Like in that era, what were your pictures like? They were entirely black and white pictures of, people's yards with quirky objects and then like a tipped over bird bath and an old rusty boat and stuff like that. Completely boring and not at all something that would be fitting into the program at University of Florida where everybody was painting on and stitching and doing all kinds of stuff with their photos. So, and I honestly did, I did know who Jerry Yulesman was only because there had been a show called the sun and the shade at the Norton museum where I worked that had you know, different photographers living in the state of Florida. So I think I was vaguely aware. I don't think I, it, it didn't even occur to me, how did he make those images or what? Because it wasn't the particular type of photography I was interested in. Mm -hmm. I was much more, I was excited to start working in color. I thought maybe that could be good. And I used a six by seven camera then, a medium format camera, mm -hmm. which I had been using since Yale. So I don't know. So I came here to Gainesville and I thought, this is actually really great. It's not that far away and it's kind of quirky. People told me, you know, you should go live in Micanopy, the little town south of Gainesville where all the artists live. So I tried to find a place there and I was not successful. So I, I just moved to Gainesville anyway. 
Wow. You have an incredible memory. Like I just, I can't imagine even remembering the name of the secretary at the university where I applied that sort of was able to help you completely pivot. I, uh, uh, or the name of my hamsters when I was little. I mean, I'm just, I'm completely enthralled here. <laughs> I remember a lot of song lyrics too, sadly. <laughs> Those are all very practical, practical skills. Um, so what moved you into the collages because I really that that's what I am most familiar with in your work were these really elaborate collages so when I was in graduate school it was a two-year program and the teachers were Jerry Ulesman, Yvonne Streetman, Wally Wilson and Wally took a break and then there was Martha Strawn so those were the people and they were all doing very creative work not just straight photography Yvonne Streetman was painting on her pictures right right yeah. right and wally wilson was making huge black and white prints in a tube oh, like, I love like wally. Oh. oh he has that big one with the blimp and the cat that's wally wilson yeah it looks like a dog's butt and a blimp or something like yeah. that mm-hmm. I'll, yeah I'll put, I'll put some of those in the show notes very strange pictures i didn't know who wally wilson was mm. yeah he went to be the chairman at university of south florida in tampa many years ago so he hasn't been in gainesville for a while and then um Martha Strawn was photographing women in India making rice flower drawings and photographing alligators. She was really into photographing alligators. So it was a little more documentary. Um, and, and yeah, Yvonne was painting on stuff, airbrushing on things. So I was kind of the odd person there where I wanted to do work that they all said, well, uh, I don't know, it's not very personal. It's not, it's kind of boring. So, I tried, I experimented with doing like solarizations on color prints and you know, they were kind of out of control. Everything was super pink and green and not, not interesting. And then for some reason, one day I thought, you know, I have a lot of memorabilia, like stuff I've had and moved around with me for years from when I was a kid. I have a lot of my old toys and stuff like that. And I thought, why don't I just put them in front of the camera and write some little stories with them, like put little snippets of text in there. So when I tried that, suddenly everyone was excited. The other grad students and the teachers was like, finally, this is a little more personal and it's about Maggie. So, you know, keep doing something like that. And I kind of like not going outside. I could just stay in the air conditioning. and (laughs) (laughs) Especially in Gainesville. Yeah. You know, I understand that. Yulesman obviously goes into a dark room and he puts these disparate elements together and you're doing it in real in the real world. You're putting disparate juxtapositions together. Um, did, did that influence you? Were you looking at the way he was juxtaposing or you were on your own path of putting these objects together? I, I don't know if there were early on if there was any kind of um, comparison or synergy or learnings from those experiments when we were graduate students jerry always took every class of graduate students into the darkroom with him to show how he did his things he was very you know willing to share all the techniques like he would in workshops too because he would always say like you you're not going to copy my work it's just not going to be possible it's really a difficult thing to do this you have takes a lot of patience and years of trying and failing before you really succeed at it so I did not want to work in black and white. That was the main thing for me. Uh, Once I started working in color, I realized I'm just not, I don't see things in black and white. I never dream in black and white. 
I really wanted to work in color. And they allowed us to have a color dark room at UF. So um, I just thought I've got, I've got to stay with color. And it's really not possible to manipulate things in the way that Jerry does in color. It's just not going to work. So I spent like 10 years with one of those tubes for type C printing, where you had like a, a bucket with a fish tank thermometer in it mm -hmm. to keep the chemicals in 96 or 98 degrees or whatever, 101, I forget now that. But, you know, I would heat up the chemicals, then I would make my exposure, usually I printed 16 by 20, and I would make the exposure, then turn all the lights on after you shove the paper in the tube and then you have like five or eight minutes of processing for each piece of paper so i watched a lot of soap operas back then that's what i did <laughs> why i thought that uh jerry's stuff was so important for me as a photographer was that he was starting with a blank almost like a blank canvas and same with your work you're starting uh, most photographers don't think of a, an image as a blank canvas you're starting with you're taking a picture of some scene but but uh, he was just pulling in elements, and he all his contact sheets were like that's for like that's an interesting part, that's an interesting part, and so uh, it always as a as you're getting into photography, it begs the question like what do I want to put there? What what should be there? What juxtapositions are nice? And that's a different way to approach learning photography. Do you do you feel that? And um, is that part of how you work? Are you like thinking about the starting as a blank canvas, right? Well, I don't know if I ever actually thought about it that way. I mean, I just think of it more that he he is a collagist, you know, and he's he's doing it all on one piece of paper and having to do it where you move that piece of paper under different enlargers. So it's just a different technique, but he's making a collage. And I was trying to make a collage in a way, but it got more and more frustrating because I would set up little, I would, oftentimes I used either a drawing that I made as the background, like a pastel drawing back then, mm. or I'd use photo paper, color photo paper that I would spray some chemicals on, like salt and copper toner and weird stuff, and then just let it change. So I would photograph outside in the sunlight and just set things on there. So it was, make, it was making a collage in 3D in real life. Like put put down this piece of paper, mm -hmm. put a dead bird on it, put some eggs. Eggs start sweating because it's so hot in Florida. And you wait till like on a winter day, 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon and get a really nice side light on everything. Um, and so I saw that as making a collage, but I didn't have anywhere near the flexibility. So I didn't really see it as parallel to Jerry's work at that time because he could go back into the darkroom multiple days and change things up and say, Oh, I don't like the shadow there. I want mm -hmm. a negative print of the angel or whatever. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of like gathering these pieces, like a hunter gatherer and like bringing all the nuts and berries back so that he could work with them later while you were kind of, you really needed to compose something, think about the different pieces so that you could be shooting it live. Were you shooting, uh, I'm trying to imagine if you have like a, a 2D drawing or photo paper, are you shooting predominantly from above or were you, how were you setting up your shots? Yes, so I had a four by five, an old crown graphic view camera and it was on a copy stand just pointed straight down at the ground. So I had maybe, mm, 18 to 20 inches under that. And so everything had 
to be really carefully composed on small objects, all kinds of miniatures. So, I mean, it's a little bit like the way that Lori Nix, for example, works, except that my things were really flat. They weren't 3D little dollhouse things. Were you lighting it or were you using natural light? Just sunlight. So that's why I usually photograph very late in the day. I never took a studio lighting class in my whole career. Mm -hmm. So I'm very bad at lighting things, even to this day. So I... I fake it in Photoshop now, but back then it could be frustrating. You, you know, you'd shoot something and then these were all four by five negatives and I'd have to take them to a place and get them processed. Then I'd get them back and make contact sheets. And inevitably I felt like, Oh, I'm disappointed. I didn't even notice that I screwed up that the shadows all wrong or Mm. whatever. And so then I'd go back and reshoot. So for Jerry, he could be in the dark room and be so much more fluid with his technique where he can just, um, you know, just decide on the spur of the moment. I don't want that negative in there. I remember this other negative and I'm going to switch that now, or this isn't big enough. It needs to be bigger. So he, he could make it happen like right then in the dark room in a more immediate way. And I was really stuck with this technique. Hmm. Was that frustration? What sort of what led you to pivot? Because now, now your work is more um, from what I've seen, it is a lot more of like kind of gathering these different pieces and I mean, it's, def- it's definitely evolved. Can you talk about what was the biggest catalyst? Yeah, I'd actually like to dig in there a little bit. That transition from, I mean, all of your work are these composed still life tableaus. And then what happened? Like, how did you move out of that into the digital domain? Well, there were some little hints back then of the you know, people were going to start working with the computer. And I remember that Olivia Parker in particular was making some iris inkjet prints. And she's someone whose work I love. There's actually a piece of hers on the wall behind me back there, that top black and white collage. But um, she had started to experiment with, with the computer and with making some inkjet prints. And I thought, and the computer's really not so good. The one that we had at that time, I think it was like a Mac 2 LC or something like that. And you're not really going to do that much with it. So someone told me that I could take my negatives and have them scanned in my four by five negatives. And then I could work on them in this program called Photoshop. And I thought that's going to be expensive. And I don't really see me going out on a limb and doing that. Cause at that time I didn't even make very much money on selling the work. I had a few gallery shows and I, I did have a gallery in New York that sold some things, Whitkin gallery back then. So I was starting to like make baby steps of selling things, but I certainly didn't want to go out and buy an expensive computer. So right at that time, the people at Adobe got in touch with Jerry and maybe we had met some of them at a conference or maybe they just reached out of the blue. I forget that right now, but they asked if, if they could send someone to our house to set up a computer, they would tell us what to order and the computer would come and they would send this guy, George Jardine to like help Jerry make an image. And what they wanted was to use that image for a poster that would be advertising a version, a new version of Photoshop that was going to have layers for the first time. Photoshop three. Yeah. Yeah. So they, we got all set up. And Jerry was kind of struggling with that whole idea. They were going to have Richard Benson um, in New Haven or, you know, at Yale do separations for this poster and or help with the printing of it. And, and Jerry really wanted it to be a great image. 
but he wasn't really sure he would kind of rather have made the image in the dark room. So actually it ended up the image that he made for that poster, he did go back and do it in the dark room with negatives as a gelatin silver print. <laughs> for the, the Photoshop ad. Yeah, but no, the actual Photoshop ad is, is done with Photoshop, but then he didn't want to show that because he didn't want to have an inkjet print or whatever. So he figured out, mm, I can go back and do the same thing virtually just in the dark room. But he rejected digital stuff. He always, I, I was active in digital stuff in those days. And I actually remember talking to you guys about it a little bit. And he didn't seem like he was a fan of using a computer. At, like he, he's a master in the dark room and going to a computer is a really different kind of way to approach your files. But what you, you, you took to it, it was sitting there and. Yeah. I mean, the one big difference is that Jerry doesn't really like to type. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty fast, but he types with two fingers. So he doesn't enjoy sitting at a desk. He likes standing up and listening to loud blues music while he's in the dark room. And that helps get his creativity flowing. So sitting at a desk is like, no, that's no fun at all. And I'm the complete opposite. I love sitting at a desk. I love typing. So it was just like made for me to have like, oh, I never have to go in the dark room again. I never have to mix up chemicals. That's amazing. So did it start that you were kind of doing digital versions of the collages you were had been making in the real world? And then it, it started evolving from that? Is that the path? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at first I thought I could basically just scan in these four by five negatives and then start making all kinds of cool adjustments to them and then print them out somehow. But it never really, that part didn't take off. And also galleries. And so we're talking like 1997, 98, 99 here. Um, galleries were not interested in showing that work back then. The inkjet prints were kind of fading and people were skeptical of them. And I think there was just, a general feeling that if you can do it on the computer, anybody can do it. It's not art. Hmm. So I, I still kept making photographs and I still kept looking for ways. I have like some kind of intermediate work from 97, 98, 99, where I am um, making a computer image, printing it out on an 11 by 14 paper, putting it on the ground, putting objects on it and photographing it with a type C negative and then going in the dark room and printing it. So I did that for a while because then I ended up with a type C print that a gallery would exhibit. Mm -hmm. What and types of objects were you placing on top of the, the print? And when you were making those initial prints, were you already thinking about what objects you could place on it or were you kind of just working through it? Um, it was usually pretty intuitive, but if I had a particular idea, like one was I took a miniature chair, a little red chair, and I, it was in real life, the red chair is placed on a background. And the background was um, a green and blue kind of landscape that was a pastel thing I scanned into the computer because I had a scanner back then, a flatbed scanner. So I scanned in a drawing of this green and blue landscape and I scanned in a bee, a big fat carpenter bee, and then I made like a, a circle of bees in this digital print. And then yeah. I put that down and put this red chair on it in, in real life with um, a very strong shadow to the side because it was late in the day. And then I photographed that. So there would cool. be like one real item in, in each one. Hmm. Interesting. Do you have any image? Do you still have that image 
around. Oh, I'd love to see. They're right over there in the drawer. Oh, cool. <laughs> I, I, your background is actually quite amazing. Just seeing all of these, um, the kind of the, the organization, the pictures on your walls, but also these file cabinets and organization. I'm, I'm guessing this is where your kind of collection lives for all for your raw materials, um, for your new work. Is that right? Yeah, I have a lot of stuff in boxes, <laughs> especially a lot of old photographs lately. Like I have tons and tons of box, gray boxes of old photos. How, how do you organize your photos that you find? Um, well, not not very well. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> if, I, um, if I put them in an image, then they're organized by year. So most of the boxes I have say source materials 2012 or source mm. materials 2017 then have those ones in there. But if they're pending, waiting to be used, they're just random and you can just shuffle through them. Talk a little bit about that. You have tons, like you go to what, flea markets? How do you find all these old, you have lots of old images that you end up making elements in your new images. Where do you find the stuff? Are you always looking for it? How does that process work? It seems to go in cycles. So sometimes I'll be really looking for something and I might look on eBay, I might go to some larger flea markets. We have particularly some in the winter in Florida that are huge flea markets, kind of like the one people know in Massachusetts that's called Brimfield. There's one here in Florida called Renninger's Mount Dora and they have this thing called an extravaganza in November and December and January or November, January, February, I forget. But there are always some people there with daguerreotypes and tin types and other things. So I love to go there. I love to look on eBay. I also have bought things over the years, many times from a really wonderful man who passed away recently named Dennis Waters, who was in Exeter, New Hampshire, and his daughter and son also collect like they, they are voracious collectors are going to all of these antique stores in the middle of nowhere and they just find the most pristine, beautiful daguerreotypes. So I would often look on his site or sometimes he would email me and say, oh, Maggie, you know, this looks like an Alice or this looks like something you'd want to know about. What does that mean? It looks like an Alice. Well, he knew that I was working on an Alice in Wonderland project. Oh, for like got it. Back in, in 2006 to 2008 or so. And then I started doing Through the Looking Glass as my next project that was just completed um, a couple of years ago. So he knew for that I needed like 20 or, or 30 different characters. Alice, you know, girls between the ages of five and 12, let's say, that look like they could be an Alice. Look like an Alice. I have um, a friend who I used to love picking up old photographs at flea markets or estate sales or garage sales. I just felt like there was kind of this really, uh, I don't know, this like kind of like haunting beauty memory sort of that existed within them. And I have an Italian friend um, who was like, you can't, you can't take those home. You are taking people's souls. They will haunt your house. <laughs> and she's a bit suspicious, but it's something that kind of stuck with me because I do feel like there's kind of this power, this memory, this like this energy in these photos. Um, do you feel that when you pick up a certain photograph or, uh, you know, does, does that, does that resonate with you at all? Well, they definitely have to be special photographs and speak to me in some way. Otherwise, I'm not going to spend the money on them and I'm not going to want to use them in my work. But it's hard to say what that intangible quality is, you know. 
the ones I pick are hardly ever wedding photographs. Mm -hmm. I don't really like that. I'd rather have a black dress, which is probably a morning dress than a, than a white dress. Um, Why? And, but they, I don't know. I think it's more dreamlike and easier to work with. I don't want everyone to look like a bride, I guess, or a mm -hmm. communion or something. But I mean, most of the people in mine, the ones that I use most often um, are like 1845 or 1840, even some 1840 to 1860. Wow. And most of those people only had their photograph made probably that, that one time in their life. Maybe they had a second one if they were very wealthy, but it was a really rare thing. And usually it is a wedding or an engagement or a couple, something like that, or a wealthy person having their portrait made. Hmm. But it was such a rare and strange thing for them to go and sit in the photographer's studio and have to hold still for a long exposure. So they're kind of fascinating to me. So one of my uh, pet issues is like I don't Photoshop my images. I feel like, uh, I don't know if I'm a purist or whatever you call it, but like I, I'm kind of a modernist. Like I believe in the, the the photo is capturing a moment in time. And that to me, that's photography. Uh, do you ever, did, and did you and Jerry ever wrestle with this idea of when photography becomes illustration? Is it photography? Is it a photo art? Is there are there distinctions that are important in there or is this just all semantics and it's ridiculous? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that, you know, photography is just an art form that has many different branches. So someone can be working in a very straight purist way and somebody else can be using Photoshop for a little bit of retouching here and there. And somebody else can be, you know, doing like what I'm doing, just everything is in the computer. I mean, it's the end result that's important. So whether you don't like to use the computer at all or you fully use the computer, it's really personal preference. And do you, do you achieve the goal that you want with your work, you know? So. Do you think it has to be printed? Is, there, uh, is, is the print part of this process or is making the image the entire thing? For me, I do like it to be printed. I, I mean, I know there's a life of images on the internet and all of that, but I really like to have something that you can put on the wall. And I know that's kind of old fashioned these days, but I mean, I live in a house with lots of images on the wall and that's what I like to look at. So for mine, I want them to exist and be really fine quality prints on paper. And I know that's what Jerry was always interested in is that like just, you know, having things that are the most well-crafted that you could possibly make them as silver gelatin prints in his case, and just, you know, having an exquisite tonal range and a beautifully sepia toned or selenium toned image. He was really more concerned with that. Didn't he, um, I mean, I'd read this, I hadn't ever heard this from you guys, but like have debates with Ansel Adams about pre-visualization and post-visualization and that whether, whether that, um, whether you could make something afterwards or whether you planned it beforehand, like the distinctions there of modernism and postmodernism. Yeah. I mean, he, he was very good friends with Ansel Adams. So I'm sure that they must've talked about that many times, but that was before the time that I, because I was married to Jerry for 25 years, but that was after Ansel Adams had passed away. Right, right. So but Jerry was invited by him to come and teach in Yosemite at one of the workshops back in the seventies, I want to say it might've been like 1972 or 1970. 
And he started going there after that, like every year. And he, he will say, he will say he's surprised that Ansel Adams invited him there because he saw the aesthetic is so very different. But Ansel Adams was just trying to put on a workshop that would appeal to quite a variety of photographers. And so why not have the newest, hippest thing? <laughs> now, why not invite a variety of people who are exploring what you can do with a camera and what you can do in a dark room? Do you take pictures? Do you actually go out and take pictures that are like picture pictures? Not yeah, I, I use my, for like the last five years or more than that, maybe 10 years, I've just used my cell phone, maybe eight years. I've used my cell phone camera. I do not have any other camera now other than my iPhone. Um, and I photograph a lot. I mean, I, I, whenever I travel, which of course now with the coronavirus, I'm not going anywhere, mm -hmm. but I normally would spend like last year, I spent like three months traveling away from home and, I photograph a lot in museums, partly for inspiration, but also collecting textures of things. I photograph landscapes and clouds all the time, even you, just around my house. Do you use those in your collages? Yes, that's what I photograph them for. Mm. So I, I never photograph people. I have a, a very sad number of photographs of people. Why? But uh, Why I don't that? know. I'm just really bad at it. So I just like to photograph things. It takes their soul. That's why you don't feel like yeah. collecting the souls. Oh, yeah. so when, when you were asking about the, you know, and saying that your friend didn't want to bring the old photographs home. Yeah. I consider it that I'm recycling them. So we don't know who they were. Yeah. In most cases, we don't even know what state they lived in. Or in some cases, I don't know what country they lived in. But I'm kind of recycling them and giving, like, upcycling them in some way. Well, and I, I'm to, to add on that, it's like I always felt what a waste. I mean, it was this, you know, this um, kind of once in a lifetime experience. Um, you didn't get your picture. It's not just a Polaroid. It's like, this was it. And then it felt, it just sort of feels so sad seeing them in a pile ready to go to a garbage can. Um, so yeah, I, I was, it, it was so funny just how different her take on it was uh, from mine where I agree with you. I feel like, well, these are gorgeous and I would use them on cards or I would use them for things because I would kind of, um, you would want to, you didn't, you wanted to understand the story. What was their life like? What, what are they doing? Why, why does this image exist? And it's weird, even if I think of it in terms of my own life and the photographs that we have from my family, there are not very many. And it's like after two generations, you kind of lose track of who they were. Yeah. So I have one ambrotype and about four or five tintypes that are from different branches of my mom's or my dad's family. But um, recently I asked some, I asked my mom and my sister if they, you know, knew exactly who this one woman is. It's two sisters in an image. And it's sort of like, I think she was on such and such as branch of the family and you're such and such great grandmother in Switzerland. But mm. we oh, don't know the name. In your collage, you used your own family pictures. And is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, but I have a few. We all have, we all have such few um, family photos from the 19th century that you, unless you really take care of them and identify them and speak to your grandparents about them, yeah. or if you're lucky enough to have great grandparents, then you lose who they are and they get passed down. And then the next generation is going to take less care of them and be less informed of who they were and where this was taken. Hmm. Uh, Maggie, I have a question about a, kind of about your process and these and taking these images and working them into a collage. 
Uh, how do you know when you're done? Like, because with Photoshop, you have this sort of infinite ability to kind of start something, go back and, and finish it later. Or do, do you sit down and just see it all the way through? Or do you sort of start something, put it aside, and then go work on another piece until you come back with it? How, how do you work and how do you know when you're done? I tend to stay with an image until I complete that image and then I move on to the next one. Every once in a while I work on two images at the same time, but they, in that case, they're usually very much parallel. So if I work on one, then I work on the other one the same amount and I kind of keep them progressing together. But um, basically what happens is you start working on something and experimenting with it. And that's, that's where this type of work is much more similar to what Jerry does in the darkroom. So once I started working with Photoshop, yeah. it's very similar to what Jerry does. Um, and you have all the infinite world of possibilities there. So I find that I go through a certain frustrating period when I first start working on something until there's something that just kind of clicks and you feel like, oh, that would be kind of interesting to make the still life and put faces on the vase and make mm -hmm. like a person popping out of the vase. That's something that I just finished yesterday, actually. Like that's my newest thing. So but at some point you're working on it and you realize, I think I'm almost done and I'm ready to make a, a test print of it. And you've sort of gone through the layers. And in this case, there were hundreds of layers with like all different little flowers and shadows and color adjustments. You have hundreds of layers in your pictures. Oh yeah. There can be three or 400 these days. Oh, so, my God. so, but I want to leave myself as much flexibility because I change my mind all the time. You know, then I, I want to take this flower out or change the shadow on that flower once I see what the print looks like. So how do you start? Do you have an idea? Like you have this Alice in Wonderland theme that you've been doing, that you are doing. Is that, do you have a whole body of work about Alice in Wonderland? Do you have other bodies of work about other sort of ideas like that? Or is that a special? The Alice thing is sort of a special thing. And I'm actually done with that now. I did Alice in Wonderland and I did Through the Looking Glass and I finished that and that book came out in 2018. And it's a show now that's up at the Harn Museum here in Gainesville, but the museum's closed. Mm -hmm. So nobody yeah. can see it. Yeah. <laughs> and even I haven't seen it. So um, it, I'm done with the Alice thing. And that that was just the only sort of discrete project, like separate project like that, that I ever did. Uh, the rest of the time I just work from one image to the next. And that's sort of something I learned from Jerry is just like whatever he's inspired by. It could be that you've traveled in his case, it could be he traveled somewhere recently and photographed really cool water reflections. And he realizes he could float something above that and wants to put another boat in there or something like that. And then he just starts working, but he might end up with an image that has no boat in it. It could end up being an angel hovering above the water or something. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of my role model in the sense of, you know, when I sit down at the computer, I try to pick one or two or three things that I think could work together or one or two or three things that are new that I want to scan in, like a, a new daguerreotype that I just bought recently and then scan it in, spend some hours retouching it and thinking about what might be possible and what, you know, what I woke up thinking about that morning. Will it show up in multiple, like, will you, are there certain elements that you just love and you keep trying them in other tableaus? Well, I tend not to reuse the exact same thing over and over that much. Like if I use a person in one, it's rare that I would use that person again. Mm. Um, but I can see that the same 
themes reemerge, like using little wooden ladders or plants or things from the garden. I can see that like there's certain themes that come back again and again, like I'm still exploring them. Do you listen to music while you work? Do you have silence? Do you listen to books? I like silence. I cannot have any talking or music or anything, which is weird because I used to have television on all the time. And in the background, I would have like- um, Your soap opera days. (laughs) (laughs) What was it? All My Children, One Life to Live in General Hospital, and then Oprah. (laughs) So that would take me through like after lunch from one o'clock till five o'clock. I could just have those on and be so happy working in the early days (laughs) on the computer. But- now I, I just like silence. And you stay on the computer for most of this. You're not printing till the very very late in the process, or do you print parts of it to see if this is working? Mm, I usually wait till pretty late till I'm pretty happy with it, mm-hmm. and then it always happens that the first test print comes out kind of disappointing or muddy or lackluster in some way. Then I go back and you know work, and I have I have calibrated monitors and everything, but it just never is exactly the way I thought it would be. So then I go back and work on it and put in some more adjustment layers and play with it some more. And I would say it it almost always changes another 20% at least from the time I make the first test print. It can totally change color or I can still move things around or whatever once I see how it looks. And that process takes usually a week about from the time that I do the first test print. So working on an image might take three weeks or more I just, uh, the one I just finished was unusually quick, but before that I had two images that I worked on for six weeks. Wow. Oh. Do you ever take them into, or have you ever experimented with or thought about taking them into motion? Like even something as simple as in Photoshop, being able to go into the motion workspace and create a, a short animation or a GIF from, from what you have? I have seen some people who do work like that when I've been at the APAD show in New York, for example, mm-hmm. and I find it intriguing, but I'm kind of um, worried about, I, I don't want to be the person that has to deal with what kind of a screen are you going to show that on? What is the technology of that screen? Mm. And will that technology still be working five years from now? If you print something on paper, then, then you don't have to worry about the technology. Right, right. Uh, do you, uh, are there th- themes other than Alice in Wonderland are there reoccurring themes that you're exploring through your work well lately it's been what I I had a show at Catherine Couturier Gallery in Houston that just closed yesterday and it was up all during the virus time it was sort of extended it was called Museum Studies and what it is is I, I photograph in museums a lot over the years And in a way that's partly because Jerry always wanted to go photograph in museums. If a museum lets you photograph there, it's an amazing experience. And I would much rather take a picture myself than use some stock thing from the internet. So I really don't use other people's photos if I can possibly help it. Mm -hmm. But I, um, I like photographing in museums because I like going to museums. So I consider it an extension of my personal experience in the museum. You know, I'm there admiring the art. I'm intrigued by some things, some color or texture or person catches my attention. So I just snap a photo of it. And it's just about, I love art. It's like, I love being in the museum. I love that. And then I bring it home and work with it. Hmm. I have a a 
question about just kind of where we are right now. I've been thinking a lot about 2020 and kind of the vision for 2020. And it brought me to this idea of thinking, well, you know, 2020 vision is supposed to be a perfect, perfect vision. But obviously this year is kind of far from perfect, although I think a lot of us are finding um, uh, silver linings to uh, every kind of everything that's happening that will hopefully change our trajectory. I'm wondering, besides not being able to go to museums in 2020s, how has this year and this time affected your vision um, and what you're shooting and what you're uh, or what you're collecting and what you're working on and ultimately your work? I think I'm getting more organized. <laughs> so not only first, <laughs> like the first month of quarantine, we, we've been on quarantine a bit earlier here in Gainesville than the rest of Florida. Like our county had a lockdown earlier, which was good. Consequently, it's been, you know, pretty quiet here, but I, I cleaned every closet in my house. I organized my silverware drawer. I did so many little projects. And then I realized that can extend to my computer as well. So I've been going in and I, I actually have never used Lightroom and I still have never used Lightroom. I haven't gone that far, but I've gone in to open up my folders of all these old images from museums and things. And it's great fun. It's like, you know, I can go back through and think, um, wow, here's something that I had meant to use to make great water reflections on this water or something. Yeah, shopping from your own closet. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, uh, you don't, and also speaking of closets, you don't really have to get dressed up anymore. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I used to travel and, you know, go out to restaurants a lot and all those things that I'm not doing now. It just gives me more time to work and read and be just gardening and stuff at home. So... I have to say it hasn't been that bad. That's good. I, I see pictures on your wall. I'm curious what, uh, aside from your own work, what kinds of photographs you actually have up um, that inspire you or maybe the story of a couple things that you have around you? Oh, well, a lot of them are from people that Jerry and I met over the years. And so I have like Dan Burkholder who does wonderful cell phone images and he used to do really beautiful platinum images so i have some dan burkholder i have um penty samalotti i like him yeah from finland and i have a couple of his which picture One do you have by penty what is it? i have a rabbit oh the rabbit, rabbit in the ground in the woods and the rabbit in the oh. well rabbit in finland and then i have um that russian way portfolio so I have those long, narrow images of people and dogs in the snow. Was that a, a Von Streetman in the middle there? Yeah, I have one of Yvonne's. Um, there's an Arthur Tress. There's a Arno Minkinen. Um, it would be cool to have a picture of your wall. I mean, just for the show notes, just like <laughs> a straight on picture of your wall. Because it's, it's amazing. It's so cool just seeing how Mark, much Mark surrounds you. Is over there. That's Mark Klett. Ooh, what is uh, the hand? Oh, that is, what's his name? He's in New York, Gary Schneider. That's Gary Schneider from New York. Um, and Jack Wellpot, Wynn Bullock, two Wynn Bullocks over there. And Susan K. Grant, who's a friend of mine from Texas. Do you like buy work? Do you guys trade? Like how, what's your relationship or every, Mostly. is there everything? These are mostly all traded, except I bought that Penty Samalotti once from Photo Eye, I think. 
I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. I think, I think I'm really amazed by his work, you know? Yeah. And then I have like around the house, I would rather live with other people's work. So I do not really like having my work hanging on the wall. I don't want to get up and see that. Um, <laughs> Why so, do you think? Is it because you spend so much time looking at it while you're making it that you've had your time with it? Yeah. And so I, I don't need to have that here. But as it happens, I had a bunch of things that I had to store somewhere. So I had I have a lot of things in frames. So I did put them on some walls, like in particular in the staircase. So I walk by them every day. But if people come over, they don't really see them. Oh, and here's a weird thing. It turns out my husband now is from Sweden. His grandfather was a photographer who in the 1960s did collage darkroom work in black and white. Oh, so I have some of those on the wall. That's interesting. Kind of a funny coincidence. Yeah, it is. And they had them hanging in the basement of his house. He didn't think they had any particular value, and he just thought this is a weird thing that my grandfather did. But I would guess that his grandfather had seen Jerry's work because Jerry, you know, was published internationally even in the 60s. So um, I think he probably saw them, and he entered these Sten's grandfather entered these things into photo salon type events where, you know, you try to win an award or a gold medal or something. So on the back of all the photos, it has where they were exhibited. I have two questions. Um, one is if you could use one word to describe your work, what word would you use? Quirky. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's right on. I don't think I want it to be just dreamlike and I don't really love using the word surreal. Although when I, if I go on Instagram and post something, I notice that so many people use that hashtag surreal, that it's not a bad thing to use it, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't necessarily think of that as my first choice. Is there an image that, um, that you've created that if it was your kind of your, your one image um, that you were remembered for, which image would that be? Well, I mean, I think right now, if I thought about what other people think, it would be that girl with the bee dress image that has a girl that's standing there with bees all over her. But that's not my favorite image. So I would rather have it be whatever one I just finished working on. You know, <laughs> the one you feel closest to is the one you just finished because it's always kind of an amazing feeling of like, oh, wow, I'm done with it. And I feel really good about that. So I finished an image yesterday and now today, if I weren't here talking to you guys right now, I don't know what I would be doing because I, I don't know what I want to work on next. Do you celebrate? Don't... Like, mm -hmm. do you do you have a tradition that you do once you've completed a work? Not really. <laughs> no. And, and also part of it is it's there's still a 50 percent chance that the next day I'm going to come back and want to tweak some little <laughs> So no, I don't really, but it's, it's just sort of a scary feeling when you're about to have to start something new because you, you always think, well, I was so happy with that one. I'm done with it. What if the next thing turns out to be really crappy? I think that's always the, you know, the, the creative's conundrum, you know, you, mm. it's, you always worry, what if that was my last idea? What if I'll never have another one? But... That was my best thing. Like I can't top that, <laughs> you know, uh, Maggie, this is 
really, I'm really glad you could join us. Uh, I haven't seen you since, probably since my dad's funeral, but it was. But uh, I'm glad you could join us and and talk about your work. Uh, I'll rethink some of my positions on Photoshop. I think uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've been getting a lot of feedback on that other side, and it's true. <laughs> I, I agree. There's a lot of there's a lot of photography. You know, there's a lot of things that it can be. And I think it's okay that you could have modernists and postmodernists in the same conversation. I think they're all really amazing. Anyway, um, I'll see you in Gainesville next time I'm in Gainesville. And uh, with that, uh, Suzanne, you want to wrap it up? I will wrap it up. Uh, Well, thank you to Maggie Taylor. Uh, You've been a fantastic guest, and we've loved having this wonderful conversation with you. Our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos, and post comments. Please leave reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever you listen, and don't forget to subscribe. We get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. If you know someone who might get something from us, send them a link. Thank you to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, Maggie Taylor for joining us today, and all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about until next time.